0: Father, it's just good for my soul to sing and hear my brothers and sisters sing the truth that we have a rock. Lord, a rock that is steady and sure that our lives, our souls are built and founded on bedrock. whose name is Jesus. And Lord, I know that those gathering in this room, those joining us online, feel the winds blowing around them. They feel the unsteady, unstable nature of the world in which we live. And Lord, I'm asking by your Holy Spirit's power, would you cause us to trust in the unchanging Jesus Christ, to be steadied, strengthened in Jesus. And Lord, we pray that not only for ourselves as we study your word, we trust you'll work in us by the power of your spirit we also pray that father for our brothers and sisters who are gathered like this buildings all over this community some in their homes and lord we pray that you pour out your spirit on your people in this community we pray specifically for faith presbyterian just around the corner pastor bobby thank you for bobby's commitment to the word of god Thank you that he believes in the inerrant, authoritative, inspired, holy word of God. And thank you that he preaches that way. That he endeavors to declare the whole counsel of God faithfully by the power of your spirit. Lord, I pray today he would receive a fresh anointing of your spirit to proclaim the Bible. And I pray the people of God that are faith presbyterian would be filled with your spirit and empowered to go on mission in this community. Lord, thanks for letting us be family with them. We look forward to seeing what you're going to do in the days ahead through them, Lord. We love you. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen, amen. Amen. Thank you. If you have your Bibles, would you go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. This morning, we will be continuing our series of study verse by verse through the gospel of Mark. And just to remind you where we are in the life of Christ at this point is in his final week of earthly ministry. It's just a couple days from our text that Jesus will be crucified at the cross. And during this section of Mark, what's being recorded for us is the escalating conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel at the time. We saw just a couple of weeks ago that he entered into Jerusalem, went into the temple. He overturned the tables. He got into a series of confrontations with the spiritual leaders, a group of men who served basically as the Jewish Supreme Court. They were known as the Sanhedrin. We'll talk just a little bit about them in a moment. Well, those leaders hated Jesus. But they also feared the crowds of people who seemed to love Jesus. And so they were kind of caught in this spot where they wanted to trap and overtake Jesus, but do it in a way where they wouldn't cause a revolt or incite a riot. So what they do is they they come up with this strategy to try and take Jesus down, where they ask him a series of questions, kind of like entering into a public debate with Jesus. And what they're hoping is that Jesus will be fooled by their trick questions into saying something that would either be wrong or at least would be foolish enough to give the Sanhedrin the upper hand. And here's what I love. Jesus ties them in knots, guys. I mean, he just destroys the competition. No surprise, right? It's pretty awesome. As a matter of fact, at the end of the chapter, after they do this Q and A public debate with Jesus, the text literally says that they decided from that time forward to ask him no more questions. They're like, guys, this is not working at all. So that's where we at. It's really awesome. And we're going to be studying these Q&A sessions with Jesus over the next few weeks. And so let's jump right in here into our next text with that first trick question asked by the spiritual leaders of Israel. Mark chapter 12, verse 13, we'll pick up where we left off last week. It says this, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk, And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you're true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. We call that first century buttering up. (laughs) Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? bring me a denarius, let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is the word of God for us this morning in our next passage of study here in Mark. Well, last week, We talked about that Jewish high court known as the Sanhedrin. Just a little bit of a a follow-up on that or a a review of that. Uh, That court was primarily comprised of men who served in different leadership roles and positions of Jewish government and culture. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And those are descriptions of leadership roles. We talked more about that last week. You can look that up on the, uh, the church website if you want to have a deep dive or a little deeper dive into those roles. We won't do it again this week. But those roles describe those layers of leadership of Jewish culture and government. But there were also groups that functioned a lot like political parties and and sort of like denominations religiously within the culture of Israel. And those groups were Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians. And so a priest or a scribe or an elder might also be a Pharisee or a Sadducee, just like a Senator in our nation might be a Democrat or a Republican. One is the role, one is a political affiliation or an ideological affiliation. And this might come as a major surprise to you, but in the first century, political parties did not always get along. Um, and, and, and we know this tension right in our culture If I start to talk about the Democrats, all the -the dyed-in-the-wool Republicans get on the edge of their seat in the room. You're doing it right now. I can feel it. And you evaluate my every word to see. Is he sympathetic? Is he antagonistic toward the Democrats? And as long as I say certain things, you're interpreting what I say to either be support for or attack against the Democratic Party. Where's he gonna land? And then you write me an email corresponding to what you think. You know how it goes. Here's the reality. As long as we believe that there is good and evil in the world, I'm pretty sure partisanship will be part of life. And we're gonna believe our party is good and the other party is evil, right? And some of you are like, well, That's because the other party's evil. So that's why I feel that way. And here's the reality. Just take us through that emotional response because how we get that in our nation was present in fullness in first century Israel. And our text actually represents one of the great bipartisan efforts in the history of human government. You see, the Sanhedrin, that high court of Israel, sends a delegation of Pharisees and Herodians to work together to ask Jesus their trick questions. And those two groups hated one another... The Herodians supported the Herods. There were a series of kings, King Herod, who succeeded one another. And they had been appointed by the Roman government to basically rule over Israel as puppets for Rome. Well, the Herods liked the political alignment with people in power. And they were less concerned about religious purity as they were political influence. So they supported the Herods. Well, the Pharisees... We're sort of like the religious fundamentalists of the day. They literally believed, like we believe, that God was going to send a Messiah to his people. And Messiah would overthrow all of the corrupt governments of men, including Rome and including the Herods. And so they saw the Herodians as religious and national traitors. They hated each other. But here they are in our text. They're not bristling at one another. They're trying to trick Jesus. And after attempting to butter him up through a series of compliments, by the way, compliments that were true but were insincere, they pose a question designed to put Jesus to the test and stick him in one of those no-win situations. You know what I'm talking about. The questions like when you ask your kids yes or no, have you stopped cheating on your homework? There's no good answer to that, right? They answer yes They're saying I was cheating on my homework. If they say no, they're saying I'm still cheating on my homework. They think they're going to trick Jesus with one of those no-win questions. What was their question? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Well, listen, the issue of taxation, something we need to know about, was literally an explosive topic in first-century Israel. The Romans had adopted a system of taxation that actually was developed by Alexander the Great hundreds of years before. And the way that it worked is that the government would set up taxation uh, uh, jurisdiction over, over various groups of people and sell that taxation right Like it was a franchise of a small business. So people could put in a bid to become a tax collector over a specified region. And they would estimate how much tax they thought they could extract from the people in that region and then be responsible to send that on to Rome. And and the thing was, they were able to collect as much as they wanted and anything over the amount they had committed to Rome, they were able to keep for themselves. So for instance, if somebody said, I think I could get a million dollars of tax from the people of Merritt Island, they would be responsible Rome would come after them to tax the people of Merritt Island for a million dollars. And they also had to judge that kind of carefully because their competition could say, I think I can get a million five out of the people of Merritt Island. Anything above that, they'd be able to, pa- not to not to pass on, but to keep for themselves. So that was a system filled with corruption and greed. It was a, 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 a place where people, common people, were pressed down because those in authority just tried to get everything they possibly could from them. Hard to imagine a government trying to get everything it possibly can from its citizens. And here's the reality. In addition to all of that, as bad as it was, these Jews were actually in a system of double taxation. Here's what I mean. These Jews were still responsible for paying the taxes that were incorporated into the Old Testament law, like the temple tax. And so they had to to pay an extraordinary amount of taxes. Some scholars estimate that common people had to pay about 40% of their annual income in taxation. And that's people who had no marginal income. And they were subsistence living in, in, in an effort to get from one meal to the next. And so they were overtaxed and burdened to the point That ultimately, it was a Jewish revolt against taxation in 66 AD that led Rome to come and squash that revolt in 70 AD. And that's what resulted in Jerusalem and the temple being leveled by the great Roman Caesar Titus. mentioned him three weeks in a row. Anyhow. So... Here they are asking him a question. That's all the background, this tender box of controversy, this no-win situation. When the religious leaders pose their question, is it lawful to pay taxes? The trap is set. If Jesus says, yes, you need to pay taxes to Caesar, he's going to lose support with the common people whose backs are being broken by overtaxation. And that will allow the leaders to arrest Jesus without inciting a riot. But if Jesus says, no, it's not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, the crowds might love him, but the religious leaders would be able to report him to the Roman authorities, and then Rome would have him arrested on sedition charges. So Jesus seems to be in between a rock and a hard place, but Jesus is the rock. You don't put him in a hard place. He sees the trick. So he doesn't just say yes or no, right? He starts by saying You're all a bunch of hypocrites, which, by the way, is a great way to win friends and influence people. He doesn't try to cultivate. And this is a really good lesson to see. Jesus doesn't try to cultivate false peace. He's not trying to cultivate fake relationships. He knows they're a bunch of religious liars who try to manipulate people for personal gain. And he's not playing that game. He knows they're trying to set a trap. So he asked them, hey, show me a denarius, the Roman denarius, the coin that was used for paying tribute to Caesar. Here's a picture of that coin. So the image on that left-hand side is the front side of the coin, and that's of Tiberius Caesar. He was the Roman Caesar during the life of Jesus. And I know you all can read the inscription. I know at least one of you can. The inscription around the outside says, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. The backside of the coin is believed to be a picture of Tiberius Caesar's mom with an inscription, high priest. Rumor has it that Tiberius Caesar got beat up in the locker room because he put his mom on the back of a coin. It's a whole other thing. Uh, I felt like it was a really nice way to honor your mom. Right, Emily? That's a good thing to do. See, here's Jesus holding in his hand that front side of the coin. He poses a really, really simple question. Hey, guys, whose likeness is this? Here's how he's going to set up his final response. Whose picture is this? And the group quickly answers back. That's Caesar. We're going to come back to the image portion of the program in just a second. But Jesus then gives the answer to their gotcha question with his famous words from verse 17. Verse 17 says this. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. That word render it means to pay what is owed or to give back. And it carries with it the idea of returning something back to its original owner. In other words, what Jesus is saying is this. We should give to Caesar what is rightfully Caesar's. And we should give to God what is rightfully God. And that's how we've understood this portion of Scripture for thousands of years. Give to Caesar what rightfully belongs to Caesar. Give to God what rightfully belongs to God's. And there are two ways to interpret what it actually means or looks like to understand what Jesus is saying here. You see, there are some people who hear Jesus say, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, give to God what belongs to God's," and they get the idea there are two categories that are separate. Things that belong to Caesar... And things that belong to God. Here's a picture I got somewhere that represents that idea. We see these two separate circles or spheres of operation. There are Caesar's things. There are God's things. And we, we envision them as separate things. Some people think there's a separation between God and government. They, they think Jesus is saying, hey, there are stuff in this category called Caesar's things That just are a world to themselves. Government and politics and all of that that goes along with it. And then there's another area... That's spiritual things, worship and praise and Christianity. And some people refer to that as the separation of church and state. Other times people don't use that language. They just simply think of their civil duties as being completely separated from their Christian life or their relationship with God. But you need to know this. I don't believe at all that Jesus is saying there are two distinct realms. Not at all. You know why? Because every realm of life is ultimately under the governance of Almighty God. He's the ruler of heaven and earth and everything in it. He's the God over pharaohs in Egypt and Caesars in Rome and presidents of the United States of America. And that's the power behind the answer that Jesus actually gives. He asks whose likeness is on this coin? It's Caesar's likeness on the coin. And he's saying that because Caesar's likeness is stamped on this coin, that it originated with him, and it ultimately belongs to him, it should rightfully be given back to him. He is saying something not only about Caesar, but he's saying something about God. Because the question that would have been hanging in the air with all these Bible scholars standing around is this. Where is God's likeness imprinted? Well, the very first chapter of the Bible. The very first thing told us about humans is Genesis 1, 26 and 27. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion. You see, he has dominion and puts people in places of dominion under his. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock. And over all the earth and every other creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Guys, the Bible's clear. Every man, woman, and child is made in the likeness of God. The Pharisees were made in the likeness of God. The Herodians were made in the likeness of God. Caesar was made in the likeness of God. You and I are made in the likeness of God. And what Jesus is pointing out is this. While the coin belongs to Caesar, Caesar belongs to God. And the Pharisees and the Herodians... And you and I belong to God. There aren't two distinct realms where government exists apart from God. It's something more like this image here. There's one great category. It's that all things belong to God. Including the governments of men. God has chosen to place the governments of men in the place of authority... But that does not mean that God allows the governments of men to replace his authority. So what I take Jesus to be teaching here is this. While we honor the rightful place of government, we ultimately honor God's place above all. And that's our big idea for this passage of scripture. Jesus calls us to honor the role of government While we honor God above all. Guys, as much as I might have wished that the conversation had gone differently, Jesus is clearly teaching its right to pay taxes. But he is saying clearly that the greater accountability is that we are called to render all things to God. We bear the likeness of God himself. We are called to render our highest honor to God and God alone. So here's what I want us to do. In the time that we have left, I I just want to consider what it looks like to honor the role of government while we honor God above all. There are three things I want to walk through fairly quickly. Honoring government includes submission. Includes submission. Jesus is inferring this in his teaching, but it's it's spelled out a little bit more clear through the Holy Spirit's inspiration of Romans chapter 13. Listen to Romans 13 verses 1 and 2 and 5 and 6. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Down at verse 5, Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Listen, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and in connection of what Jesus was teaching in our text, the Apostle Paul says, we must recognize the fact that God has placed governing authorities over us as part of his authority structure in the world. So when we rebel against government's authority, ultimately we are rebelling against God's authority because God places human government over us. That means we pay our taxes with integrity. Right, church? Yes. Yeah. We don't cheat on them. Even though, I will say, it's perfectly fine to take advantage of legal provisions to reduce our tax burden. Emily and I had three kids just so we could claim the child tax credit. <laughs> it's what you gotta do in today's economy. Anyhow, just kidding. I'm kidding. There were a couple of other financial reasons we had those kids. Uh, (laughs) We pay our taxes with integrity. We are also called to obey the laws of our government because government makes laws as part of their authority. God-given authority and obedience is part of submission. But remember, guys, remember, and this is where it connects with what we're teaching in the big idea of this text, It's that our highest honor is always reserved for God. And that gives us a point of clarity on how far our obedience to government is supposed to go. Let me say it this way. If obeying our government requires us to disobey God, then we must echo the words of the apostles in Acts chapter five, verse 29. We must obey God rather than men. Why? Because our higher authority is almighty God. And the reality is this church, there is certainly a line that's being drawn by people in governance today. Whether it's about abortion or gender identity or the affirmation of sexual immorality, there are certainly leaders in our government who would legislate actions that are incompatible with what God has said in his word, the Bible And in those instances, the way we honor the authority of God in relation to government is to obey God above ungodly government mandates and errant laws, no matter what the cost may be. And if in our lifetimes, there comes a day were to preach the whole counsel of God in a setting like this or any other setting to preach the Bible as the word of God and not compromise on biblical truth were to cost us a tax exempt status or or cost us even our personal liberty if that occurred we must make up our minds in advance. We had rather obey God than man because God is our ultimate authority. But there's one more way that I believe we honor God in relation to our particular form of government. You see, we don't live in a monarchy and we don't live under the dictatorship of a Roman Caesar, at least not yet. We live in a government that is of the people, by the people, and for the people. And I actually believe that that means one of the ways we as citizens of that government submit to our form of government is actually by voting and by representing the heart of God in the ballot box. We should step in to submission to our government by making our right as citizens of this nation exercised in our vote. What I mean is we should represent God's heart for the unborn in the ballot box We should represent God's heart for marriage and sexuality in the ballot box. We should represent God's heart for justice. We should ask God for Holy Spirit wisdom because I know it often feels like we're having to vote for the lesser of two evils. But we are called to be engaged in submission to our government and in our particular government that includes voting in accordance with the conscience God has placed in us. And so this is an election year, and, and I want to challenge us as a church to be engaged, but not as Democrats or Republicans, but as followers of Jesus Christ and children of the Most High God. Because our citizenship, church, is in the kingdom of God, Amen. not yeah. the United States of America. Yes. Heaven is your real eternal home. So we honor God by taking his word as our final authority and representing him in our temporary citizenship on this world. Honoring government includes submission to the authority of God within the authority of government. The next thing we see is that honoring government includes intercession. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It says this, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Guys, one of the ways we honor our governing leaders is by lifting them up in prayer to almighty God. And I need to confess to you that I was deeply convicted as I prepared for this morning. Because I strongly disagree with the politics of a great number of our highest elected officials in Washington. And in my private life, I have a tendency to read the headlines of decisions being made by many, many, many of our leaders of both political parties and just feel disgusted by the trajectory of our nation. I've even been known to complain to my family and friends, and judging by some of your responses, you might feel the same way. And here's the point of what I'm actually trying to say. I am ashamed. I really am. And I've had to repent. And I pray the Lord gives me a continued spirit of repentance. Because I know I'm going to be tempted again this week. I am ashamed at how much I've complained about our leaders compared to how little I've prayed for them. Here's what I felt like the spirit of God was pressing on my heart. It's almost as if I live like I believe our leaders are in control and our God isn't. Let me ask you, what would it look like if we took to heart the word of God from Proverbs 21.1 that says the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will." What if we really believe that God is able to influence the hearts of our leaders in a way that no one else can? Even us, when we vote, have you ever voted for someone and then been disappointed in the decisions they made? Yeah, it's called my whole life. But God, more than our voice in a ballot box, is able to influence the hearts of our leaders The king and the president and the Congress and the Supreme Court and our governors down to local officials. Their hearts are in the hand of the Lord and like rivers of water, he turns them wherever he wills. He's sovereign over the nation and the nation's rulers. And the Bible leads me to believe that God desires to influence the heart of leaders in response to the prayers of his people. Which leads me to wonder how much of the trajectory of our nation and I believe the trajectory of this nation is a moral freefall that fell off a cliff years ago. How much of that trajectory reflects the lack of prayer among God's people rather than the power and presence of godless leaders? What would it look like if in this election year Rather than joining the tribes of people who grumble and complain and add to the national tenor of toxic conversation, we became people who were known for being on our knees before the face of God, believing that our God can do what only God can do. What would it look like? Well, I take that to be a commitment to pray. So let's move to the third point. Honoring government includes not only submission and intercession, honoring government includes a kingdom mission. I want you to listen to the last part of that 1 Timothy 2 passage where it describes praying for the leaders. Verse 2 says, For kings, praying for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, so that you could play more golf on the weekends and have freedom to fish. Maybe That's not what it says, does it? He says, why would you pray for your leaders that, that they would be able to lead in a way that your nation would cultivate quiet, peaceful lives? That wouldn't be entangled in all the conflict and controversies like international war. Why would you pray, he says, so that... As you live godly, dignified lives, you would live in alignment with verse 4, who desires God, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The whole point of praying for our leaders to lead well is so that we, as God's people, would live undistracted Undistracted by the conflicts of government and things like war, and remain focused on the mission of a God who desires all people to be saved. Let me say it this way the agenda of God's people isn't that we would make the Church of Jesus Christ a voting block for a political party or a political rally for our nation. We're talking about politics today because. We're in chapter 12 of Mark and we left off at verse 12 last week and we picked up at verse 13 this week and that means God set the agenda. We don't infuse politics as though this is a political convention every single week. The agenda of the church of Jesus Christ, even though the Bible does talk about things that overlap with current events and government decisions, the agenda of God's people isn't set by politics or politicians or political parties. The agenda of God's people is set by God Almighty and His Word, the Bible. And it's that we would be aligned as God's church with his kingdom mission to make the gospel of Jesus known in this nation and the nations of the world. That is our mission from God himself. And anything else that would occupy center of our hearts is a distraction from the mission of Jesus Christ. When I first laid this sermon out, I promise you, I had over three pages of quotes from our founding fathers that were talking about the same things I was talking about. And I finally had to delete them, but I did keep one. John Hancock, the famed signer of the Declaration of Independence. He was president of Congress. I believe he was actually the governor of Massachusetts at one point. He and his authority as a leader in our nation called the people of his home state of Massachusetts to make this their prayer. And this is his prayer that all nations may bow to the scepter of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and that the whole earth may be filled with his glory. That the spiritual kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ may be continually increasing until the whole earth shall be filled with his glory. That we would confess our sins before God and implore His forgiveness through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Not too shabby, John. Where would we be today if we as God's people had remained steadfast with that kind of clarity and persistent in that kind of prayer? Seeing that the agenda of God's people is not the advancement of a political party but the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the church has been set aside by the Lord of the church, not the leaders of our nation. And our calling is to make the good news of Jesus Christ known to the people of this world. Friends, Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that all of us have failed to live. He died a death on the cross that all of us deserve to die. He rose again from the grave so that he could give his resurrected, eternal, abundant life to anyone and everyone who would trust him as their personal Lord and Savior. That's really good news. It's called the gospel. And what would it look like if we as God's people took the time and energy we use to get our favorite politicians into office and we spent that energy in seeking to get the gospel of Jesus to the people where we live, work, learn, and play? What if the people in this community, though they would have no idea whether or not the people in this room are majority Republican or Democrats were convinced with all their heart that the people in this room are unanimously gathered around the fact we have a king and his name is Jesus. What if that's what we were known for? What would it look like if you desired to see Jesus enthroned in the heart of your friends and family more than you desired to see your favorite candidate placed in the Oval Office, well, that's something to think about this year, isn't it? Because Jesus is calling us as his people. Yes, to honor the God-given role of government while we honor our glorious God above all. And may it be so for us today. This is the word of God for us. Would you bow your heads in response to the teaching of God's word? Has there ever come a point in time in your life where that good news about Jesus having lived the life you failed to live and died on the cross, the death you deserve to die, to provide forgiveness for your sin and restoration from God. And that news that he rose victoriously from the dead so that by his power he'd raise you up to a new life. Has that news become good news to your heart in a way that you trust it and you receive it? If you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, then right now would you call on Jesus to save you? Claim the promise of the gospel that he will save you all who call on Him in faith, repenting and turning from their sin to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Just call a simple prayer. Jesus, I know I've sinned and am a sinner. And I believe You died for me and rose again to raise me up to a brand new life. Jesus, save me. Give me Your power to live a life that's pleasing to God. I trust You. I trust You you prayed that prayer, if you'd like to talk with a pastor, we'll be down front to pray with anyone who has spiritual needs in just a moment. But for those of us who would say we're followers of Jesus, let me just ask, how is your heart honoring God above all else in relationship to the government of our nation? Is there a place the Holy Spirit has led you to repentance and conviction? But you ask God to give you power, to glorify him above all else, to align with his agenda more than any other. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that as we just go verse by verse through your word, you will, you will literally address everything in life. And this morning, we bow before the authority of your word, taking this as you having set the agenda that we would talk about something that does need to be talked about, Lord, in an election year, but every other year as well. Help us, I pray, to hear the words of our Lord, believe him and take them to heart. Help us to honor our government, Lord, in a way that is good. Stir our hearts to pray for our leaders more than we have. Let us believe that you are strong and mighty to change their hearts and lives. Let us desire that they would be saved. So Lord, even in this moment, we pray for President Biden and Vice President Harris. We pray for the leaders of Congress, our Supreme Court. Father, we pray for those governors of the states of this nation. And we pray that above all, their hearts would be captured by the gospel of Jesus. Lord, it would be awesome to see a national revival that started with the salvation of our leaders. Do that, God. We know you're able. Lord, we pray for a spiritual renewal in our lifetimes that only Jesus could bring. And we know you're able. Father, I pray that you would also renew our hearts to live with purity. And I pray humility in a conversation that, Father, we know has become very divisive and toxic our culture. Lord, let us live as lights that shine in the midst of darkness, not for the advancement of any political opinion or party, but for the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we ask it all in Jesus' name.